Well, this morning we're going to uh, be looking at 1 Samuel chapters 28 and 29. If you haven't found that already, you can make your way over there. We've been making our way through 1 Samuel since, uh, really, uh, September, if I remember correctly. And Kind of a spoiler alert, there's only two, two weeks left in 1 Samuel, this week and next week. We're going to kill King Saul next week. I, don't, didn't, I was hesitant to tell you how, the story, how 1 Samuel ends. King Saul dies. Then we'll pick up in 2 Samuel and continue on that through June. You know, if you're a human and been alive more than 10 minutes, you've faced things in this world that are baffling. You know, just uh, the world around us gets crazier and crazier. We uh, suffer losses, both financial and personal and relational. We encounter health problems. Uh, it turns out your health doesn't get better the older you get, it seems like. As you go through these things, these are probably, for many of us, these are the times where we find ourselves praying. We say, boy, Lord, I, I have always struggled with prayer until this monster of a problem encountered, and now that's all I'm doing. Lord, save me. Help me. God, show up, right? And so when we face these challenges and these trials and these difficulties, as we read about King Saul, we are praying and seeking, Lord, Lord, are you going to take care of this? Are you going to show up? Are you going to handle your business here? And if you've ever been in that situation, like I said, you probably have been if you've been alive longer than 10 minutes. And looking over the room, I think most of us have been alive longer than 10 minutes. You might have asked this question at some point, and you don't have to acknowledge out loud, but you might acknowledge it in your heart. You've sent this prayer to heaven, and then you ask this question, is God even there? Is He even hearing me? I call them bouncy prayers because you're laying in bed and you're praying and they're hitting the ceiling and bouncing off and landing on you again. That's how it feels, right? Is God even there? Is God there? And that's a question we have to grapple with because, like I said, this is not whether or not you are going to encounter a time in your life where you're going to say, God, I don't even know if you're there. I don't even know if you can hear me. Uh, it, the question is when or, and how often. And we see this here in, in 1 Samuel 28 and, and 29, and I want us to, to wrestle with this question, and again, I want to give away the end of the sermon. We're not going to answer that question very well, because it's a hard situation to be in. But I want us to look at two ways in which we see people wrestle with the question, is God there? And if you don't mind, we're going to start in chapter 29. So let's put Saul on pause. You know he's there talking to dead Samuel. We'll get back to the weird story. Flip over to Samuel, 1 Samuel 29. Is God there? And we're going to look at a time in David's life that um, he had to address this question as well. Is God there? And here's how I want us to think about it for this section. If you like taking notes, this is something you could write down. Is God there when everything is falling apart? Is God there when everything falls apart. The Philistines had gathered the forces and they were going to attack the people of Israel. The Philistines were a very, very powerful military country. Uh, I've said it before, the best way of comparing this is if the Philistines invading Israel is like the United States taking all of its aircraft carriers and parking them off some unlabeled, uh, uh, long-lost island in the South Pacific and saying, we're going to take over your island. 
And, and all the people of that island show up with their sticks and their rocks and their loincloths. I don't know why loincloths, just what, what happens. And they're going to say, no, we'll take you down. The Philistines were so advanced militarily, that's what it would be like. A, a, a primitive army facing uh, all the might of the American military. The Philistines had the aircraft carriers. And the people of Israel, they had sticks and, and rocks and, and, and farming implements that they would sharpen to use in warfare. So the Philistines were making their move against the people of Israel. If you were following along with us over the last couple of weeks, David is living among the Philistines, and he has attached himself to the king of the Philistines, Achish. He has become his personal bodyguard. Achish now is going to move out and invade Israel. And something amazing happens. David is going to go with the Philistines and invade Israel. Now, who is David king of? Israel. And the king of the Philistines has said to David, you're coming with me. You and you guys know how to handle yourselves in war, and we'd like your aid. You're coming with me. And David says, let's get it on. Let's do this thing. I'm with you. So David and his men travel with Achish to go out to war against Israel. Some of the king, Achish, that's a hard name to say, some of his generals say, um, King Achish, just a minute if you don't mind. I don't know if you remember, but David, in fact, is one of Saul's men. And where, where David was, I should say, Saul was credited with his thousands of kills. David was credited with tens of thousands of kills. Are we sure we want this guy in the, in the fight with us? What happens if we get into the heat of battle and he switches back to Israel? And the king says, listen, I know, I know David. He's with us. He, he's fine. Don't worry about it, guys. Don't worry about it. He said, just like that. He couldn't convince them. They were getting angry. They were getting upset. And King Achish goes to David, and he says, David, you can't come. The generals won't go with you. You've got to go home. And David is sent home. David is sent home. Now, understanding David's motive as he was traveling with the Philistines to go invade Israel, I... It's hard to know what his motive was. Was he a turncoat? Had he decided he had enough with King Saul and with Israel, and so now he was going to play the part of the traitor? That doesn't seem like David, does it? Was he hoping that maybe if he went in whole hog that the king would forbid him from going to the fight just like happened? Maybe he was hoping this exact scenario was going to happen, and David is just a really good bluffer. Or maybe David thought this would be an expedient way for him to gain the throne while at the same time not being personally responsible for Saul's death. Maybe he could go to fight and he could weaken the uh, Jewish forces. The, people, the military of Israel might be weakened by him and his men. He would make sure not to kill Saul. He'd leave Saul for the Philistines. And so that way he could uh, expediently get to the throne and, and finally have Saul handled and he wouldn't have to raise his hand against the king's anointed. I think it's hard to know what David's motives were. But David, even according to the Philistine king, was doing everything right. Look what the Philistine king says about David. A couple of things in 1 Samuel 29. 1 Samuel 29, beginning in verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? 
This is how Achish replied, Is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel? He has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. The king of the Philistines is saying, I have found no fault in David. A few verses down in verse 6, Achish called David and said to him, As surely as the Lord lives, very strange, since the Philistines didn't worship the Lord, they worshiped Dagon. As surely as your Lord, the Lord lives, you have been what? Reliable. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you. But the other rulers, they don't approve of you. Turn back. Go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. He, had, he was reliable. He, was, uh, he could be counted on. This was David's reply. What have I done? Then look with me. The last time Achish gives him a glowing review, down in verse 9 of 1 Samuel, chapter 29. Achis answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. That's a pretty good review. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Get up early and go. David does everything right. He obeys the Lord. He, he follows God's commandments. He is loyal to a fault. He uh, a, is working to rid uh, the people of Israel of their enemies. And, and now, even in this place where he is serving an enemy, he is serving with, with, with such a duty and honor and loyalty that that king gives him glowing reviews. And how does God reward him for all of his effort? Go home. Your, maybe your, your expedient plan for gaining the throne while at the same time not being personally responsible for Saul's death, that's not going to happen, David. You're going home. What might have been David's coronation the next day is now David's humiliation. You could imagine David going to the battle. The next, he knows, oh, it is time. It is on. I'm going to kick some Saul Heine. I don't know if David would talk like that. He'd probably say Heineeth. I don't know. Saul will die. The people of Israel will rise behind me. They'll carry me on their shoulders to the throne. Certainly, you've never had these kind of fantasies. Oh, this is going to be great. It's finally happening. No more running like a, like a, a rabid dog fleeing the, the animal control person. I'm going, to, I'm going to be on the throne. And God says, no, go home. You've got no part in this. What should have been his coronation turns into his humiliation. Sent running. We don't need your help. Now, we shouldn't, under, understand, we shouldn't understate this. A, a military man saying he can't go into the fight. That's what he does. A, a, someone of David's reputation being told, I don't need you. Are you kidding me? David says, oh, you don't need anyone else, is what David would say. He'd done all the right things in the most difficult, difficult of circumstances. And when everything seemed lined out and going the way they were supposed to do, everything fell apart. 
All of his plans fell apart. I want to give you a preview into next week. It's going to get worse for David. Him and his men drag their tails back to their town of Ziklag, and what do they find? It's been burned to the ground. All of their wives, all of their children had been hauled off by the Amalekites. While David was out following the Philistines into battle, the Amalekites were invading his hometown. They burned it to the ground and kidnapped all of their wives, kidnapped all of their children. How do you think David's men responded to that? We trust you, David. Let's go get them. Not quite. Look with me at chapter 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because his men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. His own men that he'd been running with and fighting with now were picking up rocks and saying, I get his head. We followed this Yahoo and now our wives and children. Who knows what's happening to them right now? But David found his strength in the Lord, it says at the end of chapter 30, verse 6. His men discussed stoning him, and David said, God, where are you? But in you I will find my strength. In you I will find my rest. Do you think David questioned God in that moment? I had to have. He's a human. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? I've done everything you asked me to do in the way you asked me to do it in the most difficult of circumstances. Now where are you? All that I would have stayed in Egypt where we had meat in pots to eat. Where are you, O Lord? Isaiah 55 says this about God. Of course, it's written after David's time, so David didn't have the luxury of this verse, but he would have known of this idea. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God says, listen, when you see two options, I see a million options. And the chances of you knowing what I'm up to are so slim, in fact, I'm going to call them none. My ways you don't know. I do things you can't expect. I, I do things that you would never even imagine. Paul said it this way over in Romans chapter, 30, uh, chapter 33. There's only 16 chapters in Romans. Now you, now you know why they're laughing. Okay. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, a doxology, which you've heard many times. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That seems like a comforting verse, doesn't it? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, until you get to the second part. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. God is so wise, you don't know what He's up to. Who has known the mind of the Lord, it says, or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that he, he should, God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. His ways are not our ways, and His ways are not known. And we say, God, what are you up to? He says, I'm up to my business. And you can't keep up. 
you're not going to be able to keep up. Paul said it this way also in, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. What we discover is who knows what God has prepared for you for tomorrow and the next day. And then who knows who, what that is? Only God. And, and David found himself in a position where he might have lined out in his own mind, if I do A and I do B and I do C, God is going to show up here because God knows math. And A plus B plus C equals D. Everybody knows that. And God says, A plus B plus C equals whatever I want it to equal. And my ways are not your ways. And, and what I have in store for you, no one has conceived of it. And guess what? It's so much better than whatever you have conceived of in your life. One last guy I want to look at in this section here is a friend of ours named Job. You met Job? You can turn over to Job 31. Job 31. Job is just before the book of Psalms. So if you find Psalms, just go back one, one book. This is what Job has to say in verse 5 of 31. A couple of things I want to read here, so just follow along with me, if, or just listen along. This is what Job says. If you don't know the story of Job, he had a bad day or two. He lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his homes. He lost all his property. He lost his health. And this is what he has to say. If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales. He will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm a good guy. i got it dialed in. Skip with me down to verse 13. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself and not shared it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. He's saying, listen, I took care of everybody. I've showed justice, I've showed concern, I've considered all men my equal, and I've cared for those who are impoverished. Skip down to verse 24. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my wealth or the fortune of my, hand, my hands have gained, if I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon in its splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. 
but I wasn't. Job is saying, listen, I'm a good guy. I've done it all right. This should not be happening to me. Verse 35, oh, that I had some, if I had someone to hear me, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, he's calling God his accuser, let God my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I'd wear it on my shoulder. I'd put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step, and I'd present it to him as a ruler. God, you got an accusation? Let's do this. I am the Perry Mason of the Old Testament, Job is saying. God takes him up on this offer over in Job 38. Job 38. The Lord spoke to Job out of a storm. You know you're about to have a bad day when God speaks to you out of a storm. He said, and I'm not saying he's speaking to all of Northern California right now. I don't know if that's what he's doing. That's a different week. All right. Job, uh, who is this that obscures my plans without words, uh, with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. I like the other version better. Gird your loins like a man. Suck it up, buttercup. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? I mean, surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Job, certainly you were there when the cornerstone of the universe was laid. And while I was doing that, Job, all of the stars and angels were singing because my iPod was broken. Can you believe that? God is saying all of the stars and all the angels were singing to him as he put the universe together. And, Job, and he's saying, Job, certainly you were there. I mean, it was pretty awesome. Tell me all about it. Who shut up the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment? What is Job learning? His ways are not my ways. I don't know what he's up to. He is up to something, though, and it's something I cannot know. It's something that I cannot fathom. It is something so much better than my little silly plans. God is there. It's just his plans have not been disclosed to us, nor will they be disclosed to us, but we must trust they're actually better than what we have in store for ourselves. Is God there when everything falls apart? Yes, and you have no idea what he's up to. But what the Bible tells us is he is up to something so much better than what our plans could possibly be. He is there. He is never absent. He is there, but his ways are not our ways. Is God there when everything falls apart? Yes, he is. Because his ways aren't our ways. And he's up to something better than we could possibly imagine. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel 28. Is God there when he seems absent? For David, we talk about is God there when everything falls apart? 
Now we're going to look at Saul. Is God there when he seems absent? The Philistines had invaded and were preparing to invade, and Saul saw the Philistine army, and he sort of freaked out. And he prayed to the Lord. The Bible tells us early in 1 Samuel 28, he sought the Lord in prayer. He sought the Lord through the priest. He, he sought the Lord through all the ways that the law would tell him to seek the Lord, and there just was simply no answer. He heard nothing from the Lord. He had no idea what he was supposed to do. Am I to invade and conquer the Philistines? Am I supposed to stay home? Should I twiddle my thumbs? What am I supposed to do? And God wouldn't answer. Is the Lord there when he seems absent? And uh, he had received no dream. This is verse 6 of 1 Samuel 28. He saw the Philistine army. He was afraid. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord didn't answer him by dreams or Urim. That's through the priest or prophets. Saul then said to his intended, find me a woman who is a medium or a necromancer so I may go and inquire of her. So he goes and visits this woman and has Samuel brought up from the dead that he might inquire of Samuel. He disguised himself because it was against the law to inquire of a medium. And in fact, the penalty for inquiring of a medium like this is the death penalty. He convinces the woman to bring up Samuel, which she does. And Samuel comes and speaks with Saul. Samuel wonders why he has been brought up and why he is having to speak with Saul. And Saul's saying, because God hasn't spoken to me. And when we read through the passage, did you pick up on why God was not speaking to Saul? Samuel said, this shouldn't be no surprise to you. You abandoned God when you failed to wipe out the Amalekites as ordered, and God told you through me when I was alive that he was no longer with you because you had walked away from him. It should be no surprise to you that God is not answering because you walked away from God. Samuel then tells King Saul, don't worry about it. Invade the Philistines tomorrow. You and I will see each other tomorrow. What is he saying? You're going to die tomorrow. Tomorrow you will die. Saul falls on the ground, face down on the ground, overwhelmed by the fact that he now knows the day of his death. Could you imagine what that would be like? It's tomorrow. And he grovels. And his men convince him to take a meal before they leave. Is God there when he seems absent? Why is God silent? When we pray and seek him to uh, relieve us of the suffering and pressure and strain that we're under, uh, we say, why can I not hear from him? Why do I not know what he's up to? Why will he not at least tell me I'm on the right path? Why is God silent? We read a passage like this and we make an assumption. God is silent. Why? Because we've disobeyed. We read all about Saul. Well, he disobeyed, so God wouldn't talk to him. So we make an assumption, and it's a terribly dangerous assumption in my view, that if we disobey, God won't communicate with us, either through His Word or by His Spirit or through others, that uh, God is not talking to me because I'm disobedient. And then we go through uh, confession time. Okay, now I've got to think of everything I'm ever done. God, yeah, no, I was there, and that little old lady needed help across the street, but I was in a hurry. It's a long line at the sandwich shop. And okay, God, I confess, I'm not helping the little old lady across the street. So we go through this 
I've got to get myself clean. I've got to get all cleaned up so God will tell me what's up. I'm going to let you in on something. I want you to think about this, and we'll look at it in a little more detail in Scripture here in a minute. If God only heard the prayers of obedient people, God wouldn't hear any prayers. Because disobedient people are the only kind there are. If God only heard the prayers of disobedient people, He would never hear any prayers. Well, that's a pretty good deal for God. He has a lot of spare time on His hands then, right? No. The issue is not, I've got to keep my P's and Q's in line, my T's dotted and my I's crossed. I know I said it wrong. I did it on purpose. The issue here is a relationship with God, and King Saul said, I don't need one because God's going places I don't want to go. The issue here is not obedience versus disobedience. The issue here is a relationship with God where somebody says, I I want God's ways. And God says, King Saul, I'm going to tell you my ways, and I want you to join, join me in what I'm up to. And King Saul said, you've got a lame plan, God. And he says, I don't need what you're up to. So the issue here is not merely disobedience. It's disobedience that says, God, I don't want your ways. It's a silly illustration because that's the only kind I like. Your child comes to you and says, Dad, can we go to Disneyland tomorrow? You say, well, no, we actually have plans. We're going to clean house tomorrow. And uh, besides that, a little short, I mean, well, we, maybe we can do it in the spring. We need a little time to save some money up and uh, book a hotel. So, uh, you know, we'll think about it, but we're not going to do it tomorrow. Okay, so no, we can't do it tomorrow. That, that's a little unreasonable request. Thank you for boldly asking, though, son. Go clean your room. So your son's follow-up question is, no, we can't go to Disneyland tomorrow, maybe we'll do that in the spring, is, when we get there tomorrow, can I have cotton candy? And what would you say? What's your problem? Didn't you, didn't you just hear me? We're not going. It's, it's not, I'm not saying we can't go, we won't go. Something. Well, what does cotton candy tomorrow at Disneyland have to do with anything? We're not going tomorrow. And see, this is the issue with Saul. The, the issue isn't that God didn't want to give him the kingdom. He wanted the kingdom his way. And God said, no, 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 that's not how we're going to do it. Because this kingdom is not primarily about you, it's king. This kingdom is about me, the kingdom's God. And the kingdom is crumbling around Saul. It, it's falling apart. He can't keep it together. He's going to lose it, in fact. He's discovering from Samuel raised or up from the dead. Everything is going to go away from him. It's falling away from him, not merely because he was obedient, but because he had abandoned God. He said, I don't need God. I don't need what he's up to. His plan is kind of lame. I like my plan better, mostly because my plan is all about me, and God's plan seems to always be all about him. I don't like it. And it drove him nuts that this, this God that he had abandoned, this God that he had said, relationship with you is not what I'm interested in, he couldn't understand in the midst of that why this God would not respond to him. Or why would this God who he had rejected uh, come to him? He said, God bless my kingdom. And, and God is saying, I've already taken it from you. Ask for something else. It's not surprising When everything is shaken in, in our lives, where do we turn? When everything is falling apart, where do we turn? Where do we go to? 
Saul wanted to invite God into his kingdom. And God was saying, that kingdom's already moved on. You're asking for something here I've already addressed. You lost your kingdom. So let me do a hypothetical. Do you mind? It's hard to tell with you on this one. I'm going to go ahead and do it. I guess you can give me your feedback later if you didn't like it. What should Saul have done? You ever thought about that in this situation? Let's just say, for example, like he had a brilliant minute where he actually showed some decent judgment. What should he have done? What does he know from Samuel, both living and dead, what, what God is up to? What, Saul should ha- what should Saul have done? He should have sent for the king of Israel. He should have realized the kingdom was in peril, and what do you need when your kingdom is in peril? You need its king. He should have sent for David. David, your kingdom, God granted you, is in peril. We need God's king in his place that his people might be properly defended. The problem is Saul, uh, for Saul was he wanted to keep both his own kingdom while at the same time gaining God. And God had already said, in order to gain me, you're going to have to let go of the kingdom. Because the kingdom, that ship has sailed, Saul. You can't have uh, your own ways and my ways. Your kingdom, in fact, is opposed to everything that I am up to, God would say. Your kingdom, Saul, is intended to serve only you. Whereas the kingdom I am establishing under David is intended to serve me. Samuel predicts Saul's death. And look with me at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 28. The necromancer, the woman who had brought Samuel up from the dead, said this to Saul, please listen to me. Let me give you some food so you may eat and have strength and go on your way. He said, I I won't. I will not eat. But as men joined in the women, urging him and listening to them, he got up from the ground and sat on the couch. Verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf at the house. She butchered it right there. She took some flour and kneaded it and baked bread without yeast, and she said it all before Saul. His last and final meal, a luxurious meal of the fattened calf and bread, is served before him, and that same night, they got up and left. His last meal, and even that same night, he gets up to leave, knowing the next day is his last day alive. Saul is confronted with his own death. That very night, he discovers, he knows he is going to die, and he eats his final supper of unleavened bread and fattened calf. Another silly illustration for you. Here we go. You ready? I read an article. I did a a Google search. If you haven't heard of Google, it's this website where you can search for stuff. Type meaning of life. I'm sure that'll do the trick for you. Don't do that. Never mind. Don't do that. And read this article after the invention of penicillin or the discovery of penicillin, however you want to word it, 200 million lives have been saved by penicillin. Isn't that amazing? 200 million lives have been saved by penicillin. I think that's inaccurate. How many lives have been saved by penicillin? You think about it? You got a number? Zero. 
maybe 200 million lives were prolonged. I don't know if you know how this world works. Everybody dies. Penicillin didn't make people immortal. They made their life longer with less of a fever. And thank God for it. But penicillin doesn't save lives. It lengthens lives. And, and every single one of us at some point in our life, hopefully earlier rather than later, must be confronted by the reality our kingdom doesn't last very long. There is a day that will be called today at some point in your life that's your last day. And Saul was confronted with his last day, and he clung to his kingdom with every ounce of his strength, going into battle with his sword in his hand, saying, I will fight my way out of the will of God. Can you imagine? It sounds ridiculous if we didn't do it so much. I am going to save my kingdom. I will show God who is actually in charge of my life, and it is not God, I will save my kingdom. At some point in your life, you're going to be confronted with reality that your life will not go on forever. Some of us will come to that realization sooner than others. Some of us will have some warning. Others won't. The question is, before we get to that day, will we be like Saul saying to our final breath, God, it's my kingdom, bless it, or I will not be loyal to you? Or will we finally understand what God has been saying all along? No, my son is king. Join his kingdom. Give him the throne. I mean, we make fun of Saul. Why didn't he call David? and bring the true king into the kingdom that he might bring the glory of God to the people of Israel. But the fact is, this is what we do. God, it's my kingdom, and when you finally figure out what I'm up to, and you finally agree to it, you and I are going to get along just dandy. And God is saying, no, 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 your kingdom is really, really short. And your kingdom is not very awesome. Why don't you bring my king, the true king, get rid of your silly kingdom, and let him have him have the throne of your life. And let him have the throne and join his kingdom instead of bringing him into your kingdom. First, uh, not, I shouldn't say first. First Luke is what I was going to say, uh, which would be the only Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Jesus strictly warned all of his disciples not to tell anyone about his coming death. And he said, the Son of Man has to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious people. He must be killed, and on the third day he's going to be raised from the dead. Verse 23, he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That's another way of saying giving up, give up your own kingdom and join my cross-bearing kingdom. Whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, a.k.a. Saul. Whoever loses their life for me will, in fact, save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? About eight days after Jesus said this, verse 28, Jesus took John and James with him up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his clothes became bright as light. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. They asked Samuel if he wanted to go, and he said, I've done that. I'm tired. And they were talking with Jesus. So here is Moses, the man of the law, and, the, and Elijah, the, the prophets, and Jesus speaking with them in all of his glory and his disciples looking on, realizing Jesus is the fulfillment and completion of the law and the prophet. 
and the prophets. He is both the priest and the king. And Jesus shows his disciples his glory, his way of saying, join my kingdom. It looks like a humble kingdom. It looks like a small kingdom. It's a a kingdom of crosses now, but someday it will have glory. Give up your own kingdom and join my kingdom. It's better than yours will ever be. Just very quickly, I want to look at two, other, two or three other passages. James 4.13, you can turn there or just listen to me as I read these. This is something James said to Christians in Jerusalem primarily. Listen to you who say this, today or tomorrow we're going to go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on some business and make some money, build our kingdom. Verse 14, why, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a, a mist that appears for a little while and then you vanish. Instead, what you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That is to say, you know what, if, if, if this is a function of God's kingdom, then may God's hand be in it. If it's not, may it not happen. As it is, though, when instead we boast in our arrogant schemes... James charging us, instead of thinking of our own kingdom as somehow walking side step by step with his kingdom, we should say, no, 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 it's not about me at all. It's all about what God is up to. We have this promise in Philippians chapter 1. I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion as long as you're a really good Christian. What's it say? He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His kingdom will be done in our hearts because he's in charge of it. He will finish the work that he began in us. It certainly won't be easy all the time. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us there will be times to conform us to the image of Christ. He will take us through times of discipline and trial and difficulty that we might learn to trust in Him and that we might have those things which aren't like Christ removed from us. How does Jesus work His kingdom out in our hearts? We're going to close with just a couple of thoughts on this. I don't know if you notice the similarities between Saul and Jesus. The night before Jesus' death, he also was face down on the ground, moaning in agony. Do you remember that night? Have you read about it? Praying to God. No, no, not, not this God. If it's at all possible, God, I would prefer not to go to the cross. But not my will, but yours be done. The night before his death, he was face down in agony. But unlike Saul, who said, I will hold on to my, to my purpose and my desires and my kingdom till the, till the arrow pierces my heart, Jesus said this, not my will, but, but yours be done, Father. Unlike Saul, who on the, the night of his death had the chance also to share in a final meal with his men, eating unleavened bread and a, a succulent piece of steak 
Saul uh, devours his meal because he knows it's the last good meal he's going to eat. What did Jesus do with his meal? He took the bread and he broke it. He said, take, you guys eat. It's for, it's for you. And I want you to keep in mind, not only is this bread for you, this bread is my body which is broken. I'm going to die on behalf of you for my Father's kingdom. My kingdom is my Father's kingdom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for you. Here's this cup. Drink the cup, and when you uh, allow the wine to wash to the back of your throat and down into your stomach, I want you to understand that is my blood that is shed, and it is a covenant, a promise to you that in me you're made clean. Your sins are forgiven. Unlike Saul, who everything was for me, Jesus comes and discovers the day of his death and says, this is for, it's for you. My body will be broken and I will bleed out, and it will be all for you. Unlike Saul, Jesus raises from the dead. I don't know if you want to hear this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, and I'm going to close with this passing shot. And don't shoot me, I guess. Jesus is not here to save your kingdom. He, he didn't he didn't come here to, to save your kingdom any more than he came to save Saul's kingdom. He came to save you out of your kingdom into his. He, he came to deliver us from this desire to cling to whatever we think must be and say, finally, when he moves in our hearts, nothing must be except Is God there when he seems absent? Yes. But a heart needs to be moved at a certain point to say, if God's not here, let me go and find him. Because wherever he is is better than here. I would pray this would be before you discover the day you're moving on. That we may live in his kingdom even here and even now.